So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty. World's energy. biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Special. Hello and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. We're talking about the Environmental Protection Agency today with Jeff Holmstead, who served as the EPA Assistant Administrator for Air and Radiation during the George W. Bush administration. He was the architect of several of the agency's most important initiatives affecting energy use, including the Clean Air Interstate Rule, the Clean Air Diesel Rule, the Mercury Rule for Power Plants, and the reform of the New Source Review Program. He's now a partner at the Bracewell Law Firm, where he heads the firm's Environmental Strategies Group and advises energy companies on climate, Clean Air Act, and energy issues. Jeff, welcome to Off the Charts. Thank you. Thanks for having me. EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt's stated agenda for the agency is to give states more control over their air quality compliance. He says he wants to prioritize the cleanup of Superfund sites, lead-contaminated drinking water systems, and abandoned mines. Meanwhile, he's been attempting to roll back efforts from the Obama administration, including fuel economy standards, the Clean Power Plan, the Waters of the U.S. Rule, he attempted to roll back a methane rule on oil and gas operations, but the federal courts have so far prevented it. What's your take on that agenda, Jeff? Are you on board? The first thing I, I think everyone should understand is much of what we're seeing from the Trump administration is a re reaction to the Obama administration. We've never had a swing like, like this before. Um, and you won't be surprised maybe to hear me say this, but I, I really do think that um, in a number of areas, the Obama EPA really did go beyond its statutory authority. When you're talking about the Clean Power Plan, which was an EPA effort to completely restructure the energy economy, if you're talking about waters of the United States rule, there was an awful lot of people, <laughs> including some judges, who think that that was a, a regulatory overreach. So what I think you're seeing from the Trump EPA and from Administrator Pruitt is is a lot of um, is a lot of paring back of some of those regulatory some of that regulatory overreach. Um, you asked me whether I was on board, and I think b b by and large I am. I I don't know that I would do things exactly in the same way that that uh, the administrator has, but I I do think it was time for EPA to go back to its statutory mandate, which is not to say they shouldn't be dealing with climate change, but they should be dealing with climate change in a way that's consistent with their statutory authority. So let's talk a little bit about how Pruitt's EPA has been pursuing this agenda. We'll speak generally first, and then we'll focus on some of the different rules specifically. So generally, how difficult is it to reverse a regulation? 
it's it's no more difficult to reverse a regulation than it is to write one in the first place, but that means it's actually pretty difficult. <laughs> um, uh, at the at the outset of the administration, um, there were a lot of announcements, and there were some things that could be done at the stroke of a pen, um, but those are few and far between. And and when you're when you're working in this area, and when something has been established by going through the regulatory process, the only way to undo that is to go back through the same process and make sure that you have an adequate record to support the things that you're doing. And um, there's also the problem of, of legal challenges, right, which can complicate reversals in the same way that every time there's a new regulation, um, there may be lawsuits that delay it. Is that also true of reversals? Sure. It's the same both ways. And again, I would point out that um, a couple of the most significant things that he is reversing are things that the court, uh, were Obama actions that the courts had already been, had already put on hold. Again, the best examples are the Clean Power Plan where the Supreme Court stepped in to make sure it never went into effect until the legal issues could be heard. And the same thing happened with Waters, the United States rule, where you had several different courts who stepped in to say, you know, on a preliminary review, this looks like it's legally problematic, and therefore we're going to put it on hold. Um, so some of those actions, some of the Obama actions were stayed when Pruitt came into office. And, and it's also true that some of, some of the actions that Mr. Pruitt took early on were also overturned in court. So you've uh, mentioned the importance of establishing an adequate record when you're trying to reverse a regulation. Do you think the EPA has done that effectively so far? Well, the answer is it's way too soon to tell. Um, there, were a, there were a couple of early missteps, uh, where I, uh, which, which I largely attribute to the fact that they didn't really, when I say they, I mean the new political, the administrator and those around him didn't really have a full team. And this administration was much slower than any prior administration in nominating um, senior officials and getting them in office. And, and everything about the Trump administration is, is, is unusual. And they came into office without a team of, of people who were really prepared to take over the, the, these responsibilities. And, and I think there were some people in the White House who, who didn't fully understand how important many of these positions were. And, and so as a result, um, the administrator did a couple of things early on where I think if it had a, a, a general counsel in place, um, he would have counseled them to go about it in a somewhat different way. They now finally, after more than a year, have much of their team in place. And, uh, and, and since then, we've seen that they've, they've really proceeded in a, in a way that reflects much more sort of thoughtfulness in terms of the administrative record and the process that needs to be undertaken in order, in order to take these actions. When you say everything about the Trump administration is unusual, it sounds like you're talking about more than just, you know, the positions that were left open in, in these agencies. So going back to the campaign, it was a remarkably small number of people who were involved. And I've been involved in the in the last two Bush administrations and in, and in the in the Romney campaign, I was not involved in the Trump campaign. And just going back to the Romney campaign, they had um, 
teams of outside experts, people who had been involved in these areas, people who had served in prior Republican administrations or worked on these issues. And, and so there was a lot of thinking going into what, what needed to be done on a whole range of issues, how that should be done, who the people would be who would likely be in positions of authority. And the Trump campaign had none of that, right? They didn't have these teams of outside advisors, certainly not on energy and environmental issues. And they did not have sort of a team to draw from in terms of filling these positions. And so Mr. Pruitt was confirmed by the Senate, but then I, I think nobody else was confirmed or even nominated for many months afterwards. So because of the unusual nature of the campaign, uh, you also, I, th I think, saw, at least on these regulatory issues, the administration got off to a pretty slow start. So let's talk about some of the specific rollbacks that they've initiated so far. Um, let's start with the clean power plan. Where does it stand right now in the courts? So it, it is still um, pending before the, the, the Supreme Court. Um, uh, well, it's even more complicated than that. Uh, the case was pending before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, um, but before they took any action on it, uh, the, the, the challengers, including one of my clients, went to the Supreme Court and persuaded the Supreme Court that the legal issues were significant enough and, the, and the le their legal case was weak enough that the regulation should be put on hold, it should be stayed. So, so the, regula the regulation itself is stayed. The case was argued before the D.C. Circuit but before the D.C. Circuit made a decision, the Trump administration took office. They went back to the court and said, we're not sure we want to defend this regulation. We're not sure it's legal. And, and they've since told the court that they think it's illegal, and that they're planning to take action to undo it. By longstanding tradition, the, the courts don't rule on issues that, that are not in, in legal parlance, a case or controversy. And when the agency that issued the regulation now says that it no longer supports it, then the, the courts historically have not ruled on that. So, so the case is te still technically before the D.C. Circuit, but that case is stayed, and, and the court is basically telling EPA, well, you have to give us regular status reports. And, and what EPA has said is, well, we've now proposed to revoke the Clean Power Plan, and we anticipate taking final action on that shortly. So that may be much more information than you wanted to know, but, but it is actually quite complicated as a, as, a legal, as a legal matter. No, that is really interesting. How long can that process go on? Well, there's been some prior cases, not nearly so high profile, that has gone on for years. Yeah, um, we that, probably have some that, listeners who are wondering if it can go on for four years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, what I would say is, um, it's I'm quite confident that that the administration will take action probably by the end of the year or early next year to formally revoke the clean power plan. And then to and then to promulgate to issue a new regulation to uh, to reduce CO2 emissions from existing power plants. Um, I want to ask you about that new regulation, but before I do, there's there's also the question of whether the clean power plan is still a useful regulation because many of its emissions goals have been met um, much further ahead of time than was anticipated when that regulation was written. So is there any point in 
battling over it anymore. Well, I think you're absolutely right that market forces have have changed the U.S. energy sector much more quickly than people expected. And it's a combination of other government programs, subsidies for renewable energy, for example, and, and state renewable energy mandates, coupled with the low price of natural gas relative to coal, has very has really fundamentally changed our electricity sector. And uh, some people claim, and I'm not sure this is quite correct, that, that market forces alone will get the same emission reductions that would have been achieved by the Clean Power Plan. I, I'm not sure that's correct, but it's certainly true that emission from, from overall U.S. emissions have continued to go down. You asked me, well, then why is there a big fight over the Clean Power Plan? And it really has much more to do with EPA's authority under the Clean Air Act. In the, in the Clean Power Plan, the Obama EPA claimed a pretty remarkable authority that, that no federal agency had ever claimed before. They basically claimed that under the Clean Air Act, they could require companies to close down certain types of plants and to build other types of plants. And... And the the question about whether a state wants to have wind or solar or coal or nuclear had had always been left up to the states, and uh, and the Supreme Court had had made that quite clear that that was a state province, not a not a federal government province. So so I think from 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 the clients that I represent. Um, the the big concern is what that represents in terms of EPA authority, because if that authority is upheld, that means that EPA could then decide that certain types of refineries need to be shut down, that certain types of cement plants need to be shut down, and and that has never been EPA's role. Um, and and so the, it's the legal precedent as much as the effect on the power sector sector that that's at stake with the clean power plan. And I imagine if the plan is revoked, then that question remains unanswered. Um, not necessarily, because when it is revoked, uh, it is widely expected that the environmental community will challenge the revocation, arguing that, in fact, EPA has the authority that the Obama administration claimed. Exactly how that plays out in court is a little bit up in the air. It could ultimately go to the Supreme Court, and it could go to the Supreme Court before the end of the Trump administration. So we, it is possible that we may get a Supreme Court decision on the question of EPA's authority. And I, I think most of us who are outside observers think that, that the Supreme Court is currently constituted um, who is highly unlikely to uphold the authority that EPA claimed in the Clean Power Plan. Now, you mentioned that it's expected that the administration then will promulgate a new regulation to replace it. Is that something the courts have required in the past? Well, we, we've never had a situation quite like this before. Um, so it's not so much, you know, whether when, when an agency revokes a regulation, they have to do a replacement. The question here is because EPA has made a determination that CO2 emissions from power plants uh, uh, are reasonably expected to endanger public health or welfare, those are the statutory words, then EPA is, is therefore required to take regulatory steps. And so if they were to revoke the Clean Power Plan without doing a replacement rule, 
then they would certainly be sued um, uh, by by those who want to force them to take to take action. So uh, when I say it's expected, I think early on there was some questions about this. I think as Administrator Pruitt has had more time to be advised on the legal issues involved, uh, that he's come to realize that that they can't simply revoke the Clean Power Plan, that they need to actually come up with their own plan and and establish that plan through the regulatory process. So I do want to ask you whether um, that Obama-era endangerment finding for CO2, uh, if, if that's something that could or should be revoked. But before we get to that, I want to know if if this new regulation is promulgated, what you would like it to look at, look like? So just a little bit of context here. When the Supreme Court said that EPA has authority to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act, that decision did not give EPA a roving mandate to do good, right? I mean, essentially, and the Supreme Court has clarified that, that, that any action they take to, to regulate greenhouse gases has to be based on a specific statutory program that Congress created. That's important to understand because the, 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 the statutory language, the provision that EPA has used to justify the Clean Power Plan is a provision that's been in the Clean Air Act since 1970. So we have 45 years of, of regulatory history and hundreds of, of, of actions taken by EPA. Every other time, and so there's more than 100 of these standards in place right now, what EPA does under this section, Section 111D, is they look at physical or operational changes at a plant that, can, that, can, that will reduce the emissions from that plant when it's operating. And that's, in statutory parlance, that's the best system of emission reductions for controlling emissions from, from a plant. So what I anticipate EPA will do is do exactly what it has done more than 100 times in the past, is look at physical or operational changes that can be made at a plant to reduce its CO2 emission rate. And, and we know that's, by and large, changes to improve the, the efficiency so that a plant can produce more electricity for the same amount of fuel or use less fuel to produce the same amount of electricity. That, that would be consistent with 45 years of regulatory history. So I think that is what we'll see. And then the other thing that is important about this particular provision is it's very clear that EPA provides guidance and then states are the ones that make the decision. And that was the, the other big issue with the Obama administration is they, they, they basically said to states, well, you have some discretion here as long as you get exactly the emission reductions that we tell you you have to get. That's not the way the statute works. So EPA will provide guidance to the states as to how they should go about evaluating these issues. And then states will be given the, the responsibility and, the, and some discretion to come up with uh, emission standards that apply to the, the plants in their states. As well as the methods for reducing CO2 emissions? So EPA will identify those methods, um, and then states will use EPA guidance on those methods to come up with these standards. Now, 
you know, I don't mean to take us off in a different direction, but one of the, one of the interesting questions is, well, what about states who have already adopted a very different approach? What about California, or what about the the so-called Reggie states that have that have developed a cap and trade program among sort of the Mid Atlantic and New England states? Um, and there are some interesting legal issues involved there. If the states show, well, you know, we have this different program, it's not structured like yours, but it gets emission reductions that are comparable to or greater, can that be approved? And, and as I say, there are interesting legal questions that EPA is going to have to grapple with. Okay, so at the foundation of the Clean Power Plan is this endangerment finding. Correct. Um, which designated CO2 a pollutant under the Clean Air Act. As far as I know, Trump and Pruitt have not gone after that finding. Why do you suppose that is? Well, I, I, th I think th there's certainly a constituency out there that is, that is arguing very strenuously that they should reverse the endangerment finding. I, I think that um, the administrator and others in the administration realize that in many ways that would be a huge effort that would accomplish nothing because undoing the endangerment finding itself is an action that would be challengeable in court and it's not clear that it would stand up in court but even more fundamentally the next time a, another administration comes along they could easily just reverse it and put it back in place again and and so it would be an enormous effort to to, to try to get the EPA staff <laughs> to reverse that finding um, and ultimately, whether that would stand up in court is a is open to question. Many people think not. Uh, and and even if, uh, as I say, the next time we have a Democratic administration and maybe even another Republican administration, they would simply put the finding back in place. So it's an awful lot of effort for something that doesn't really accomplish very much. So would it require them to prove scientifically that CO2 is not uh, the hazard that Yes. We take it to be. Right. So they would, they would have to have a, a scientifically sound justification for showing that CO2 emissions aren't reasonably expected to endanger public health or, or welfare. Okay. So let's move so on. I, so oh, sorry. so I, I, they're not going to do that. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to vehicle emission standards. So the Trump administration has decided that it's going to ease fuel economy standards that were set by the Obama administration. California is considering fighting back on that. What's your outlook on that case? So I think even if we had a Clinton administration, they would essentially be forced to, to, to revise those standards. And just for, again, a little bit of context here, when those standards were set back in 2011, um, it was essentially a negotiation between EPA and the state of California uh, with some participation by auto companies. And what what they did was set standards from 2012 or 2013 all the way out to 2025. As often happens under, under environmental law, in the near term, those standards are, are, are pretty reasonable. And so if you're looking at a curve, you see that the standards are, are increased very gradually in the early years. And then when you get out past 2020, 2021, 2022, they go up and become much more stringent. And the expectation is, well, over the time, you know, we expect these technologies to come along to make these standards much more um, economically feasible. 
so the, 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 when they did that, everybody involved, including California and the Obama administration, recognized that there was a lot of uncertainty about the future in 2011, understanding re really what was going to be cost-effective in 2021, 2022, through 2025 was uncertain. So they had this formal process to review the standards. Um, what the Trump administration has done is at the end of that formal process said, we don't think these standards are appropriate. And in large part, what they've said is, and they didn't say it in these exact terms, but the, the, the issue with these standards is if people don't want to buy the technologies that EPA is mandating, it's bad for the auto companies because they don't sell cars. It's bad for the environment because people continue to drive older cars for much longer than they otherwise would have. And, and so when these standards were set back in 2011, people expected that the price of a gallon of gas would be, you know, in the high three, low $4 range. And we've now seen that gasoline prices are much lower. Demand for these alternative fuels has actually gone down. So notwithstanding the fact that many manufacturers are now producing electric vehicles, sales of those vehicles has actually gone down over the last three years. So, so you have this situation where if you keep the standards in place, you're mandating technologies that people are not, at least for the most part, very interested in buying. And, and, and some people say, well, you just need to keep those standards. And long enough, people will ultimately you know, be forced to buy something. But the costs of that are pretty enormous. And so I, I think you know, I think that way too much attention has been focused to this finding. I think the key will be what they, how they revise the standards, right? All they've said so far is we're going to revise them because we think they're inappropriate and we think they're more stringent than can be justified. Over the next year, they will go through a regulatory process and they will propose revisions. And ultimately, I wouldn't be surprised if, again, we see sort of an agreement between EPA and the state of California and the auto manufacturers on on standards that are that, that provide more flexibility because nobody wants to be in a position where you know the government is requiring that that people buy cars that that well that's not they'd be requiring that manufacturers produce cars for which there's not really a, a, a market demand so the state of California has a really interesting standing in that case that we have a situation where the federal government has to negotiate with California. California is taking a very aggressive stance toward fuel economy standards. How solid is California's special standing and what's it based on? So EPA doesn't necessarily have to negotiate with California. And when the Trump administration first took office, they basically announced that they thought the standards were unreasonable and, and they were going to revise them and they were going to revoke the authority that California has to set, to set their own standards. And the reason that there even, is even a, a conversation is because under the Clean Air Act, California was given a special preference that nobody else had, and it was based on the fact that California had by far the worst air quality problems and that they had a pre-existing program to set standards for cars sold in California. So for those two reasons, when the Clean Air Act was first passed back in 1970, the, the Congress decided that, that cars, standards for cars should really be nationally uniform, and so states were preempted from having their own standards except 
the state of California could get a waiver from EPA to allow it to have its own standards if they showed that they had compelling and and you unique circumstances or something. So California has always gotten a waiver to have its own standards, but it's not clear that California can show a court that their circumstances with respect to global climate change are different from anybody else's. When it comes to conventional air quality, whether you're talking ozone or fine particles or almost anything, California really does have unique and compelling circumstances. With global climate change, they, they, they may argue that they do, but that's debatable. And, and I may be going on way too long, but this is interesting because California, California only has this special authority if EPA agrees to grant it to them. So if the Trump EPA decides to revoke that authority, where are we? Where we'll, we're back in court. And California would challenge the revocation, and, and that's bad for the automakers because they see these standards coming along, right? And if you're building cars, you need some lead time to tool up your factories, to get, you know, to order the materials. And in the meantime, you see these, these years getting closer and closer. You have one set of standards that EPA has set. You have California saying, well, you know, we want to have our own standards. You have this uncertainty. And so all of those pressures, I think, lead us to a place where notwithstanding all the political rhetoric, you could certainly see a case where there is, again, agreement among California and EPA brokered by the automakers to have uniform national standards that, that would not be quite so aggressive as the ones that we have today. Great. I, I want to jump to the waters of the U.S. rule, which you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the podcast. The waters of the U.S. rule would extend Clean Water Act protection to more bodies of water, more kinds of bodies of water uh, than were previously. Let me just ob object to that. Okay. Because if you're talking bodies, bodies of water, those would be protected under any circumstance. What you're talking about is are, are parts of the country that are not bodies of water, but, but, are, but, have, but are wet some of the time. And, and, and so this question of what qualifies as, as a water... Um, the Obama administration essentially said, well, anything that is wet enough during even temporary periods to, to support, you know, uh, a, a wetlands, even if it's only very temporary, well, we have jurisdiction over that land. And so it's not bodies of water we're talking about. It's, it's, it's areas of the country that are dry most of the time, but occasionally are wet. And the question is, under the Clean Water Act, does EPA have jurisdiction over those? It's good to have an attorney <laughs> on the podcast. Well, that, that, that's really what it's all about. That's the big question. So what do you expect happens next in that battle? The Trump, uh, Trump signed an executive order to rescind well, the to, rule. Well, to right? tell EPA. The rule hasn't been rescinded. The, Trump, the president can't rescind the rule. Only EPA can do that. Okay. So, so they're, again, in the regulatory process. It will be relatively easy for them to, to, to rescind the rule because you don't have a technical record. It's purely a legal argument, right? And, and so that's not very hard. The, the hard thing will be to come up with a replacement 
and, and different administrations have struggled with that for years, to go far enough without going too far. And there's a complicated series of court cases, and there's an important Supreme Court decision that only got um, four votes. And so you had, you know, you have guidance from four justices going one way, you have guidance from four justices go going another, and then you have this separate opinion written by Justice Kennedy that agreed with one side, but, 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 but said for completely different reasons and, and kind of a different standard. And, and so maybe this is only interesting to lawyers, but the challenge that they have is, given this inconsistent reading of the statute, how far can they go? Be, because they have to go far enough to be protective, but they can't go too far that they're, that they're overreaching. And that's, that's where the issue is. And so rescinding the water of the United States rule is, is, is legally not a big deal. Coming up with a, a, a replacement for it um, and providing some clarity to an area that's been highly uncertain for many, many years, that's the challenge that they have. So what in your estimation is the best thing Pruitt's EPA has accomplished? You, you know, I, I, in the regulatory front, they've, they really haven't done very much yet because they haven't had time. So I would say um, that, 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 that maybe the best thing that they've done is to rebalance the relationship between states and the federal government. And under most of our environmental statutes, most importantly the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, they were established on this model of cooperative federalism where EPA has certain functions, states have discretion over many things, but, but oftentimes states have to come up with a plan to submit it to the EPA for approval. And historically, EPA has approved those state plans. What we, what we saw under the, under the Obama administration was um, many, many, many more times when EPA disapproved those state plans and imposed their own plan. And so, for example, under the Clean Air Act, <laughs> again, without getting into too much of the details, if, the, if EPA disapproves a state implementation plan for something, then it can impose a federal implementation plan. And the Obama administration did more federal implementation plans than all prior administrations put together by like a factor of five. So I don't remember the exact numbers, but if you add up all the prior federal plans, it's like one-fifth of the number that happened under the Obama administration. And they basically said, you know, we're going to tell you how these things should be done. When this administration came in, they, they actually... Um, on some of those things went back and said, we're going to revoke those federal plans because we think states were, were given some discretion here and we're going to give the states another opportunity to submit plans that are approvable. And, they, and, they've, and so I think they really have rebalanced that relationship and that's something that has been supported maybe not, not surprisingly by almost all states. So whether you're a very blue state or a very red state, there were a lot of states who were unhappy that EPA had essentially taken away the discretion and the authority that they thought they had before. So I would say, you know, that may be the single most important thing that they've done. What's the worst? You know, I, 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 don't, I don't want to get myself in trouble with the new administration, but um, because I am largely supportive of what they're doing, I, I, I think... 
I, I think they've made some issues more political than they needed to be. Um, you know, if you go to a highly partisan organization and give a speech to announce a new policy, it makes it seem much more political and, and really, I think, makes it more open to legal vulnerabilities. And so, you know, the, there's some decisions that have been made and they've come up through the decision-making process and, and ordinarily that decision would be announced by a career official. Um, because it's a highly technical issue. And instead, they've elevated some of those things, made them highly visible, had the administrator you know, do a signing ceremony in a big event. And, and, and I think all administrators you know, want to get credit for things that, that a constituency wants to see. But by, by doing those things in such an overtly political way, I think they've, they've, they've made them more legally vulnerable than they otherwise would have been. Now, now maybe I'm wrong, and we'll see how they fare in the courts, because those, the process there is just, is just now starting. But, but I, I think that's one thing that I would have done differently. Thank you for joining us today, Jeff. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me and, uh, and putting up with, I hope I haven't used too many acronyms, and, but I, I hope at least some of your listeners care about all these details because that's, they really are important. And some of these issues, if all you do is read the headlines or even if you read the trade press, you don't fully understand what's at stake. I think you did really well on the acronyms for an energy policy <laughs> podcast. And thanks to all of you out there for listening. Please make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.